I'm going to apologize in advance. <laughs> this episode is a little longer than usual, and it involves a kind of meandering ramble in my half-formed thoughts about what it's like to play with um, in a setting that's an existing inter- existing intellectual property as opposed to a setting that was specifically created for a game. So the difference between playing like a Star Wars role-playing game versus, say, playing Forgotten Realms. Star Wars exists before the role-playing game. Forgotten Realms is sort of built for the purposes of playing a role-playing game. So uh, bear with me through a, a slightly longer-than-usual episode. Hi, I'm BJ, and this is the Arcane Alienist Podcast. Hey, BJ, Jason here. Yeah, Daniel does over at Bandit's Keep does a great job with his YouTube channel. I'm really considering getting paying for a YouTube Red or whatever it's called subscription so I can download videos. I, I don't, you know, have unlimited data on my phone, so I can't stream stuff when I'm out and about. But if I could download them, I could at least listen in the car or something. So I'm considering that. As far as what to do when not all your players show up. So back in the past, I have canceled games, but my preference is not to. I know one thing that Carl Rodriguez over at the Geomologist Presents does that I like is He'll have another game or two in the background, you know, set up. And so you could either run a one-shot or have a continuing sporadic game. Like we're, we have a Call of Cthulhu game that's a continuing sporadic game that we'll hop into and run when not everybody can show up. And I think if you have, a like, an episodic game you can run, you know, like I've been talking about doing this Masters of the Universe game using the Metal World rules, and I really need to spin that up so I can use that as a pickup game as well. But as long as it's, you know, like cartoons or like the old TV shows where they're not really connected, it's not a big deal if not everybody shows up. And you can default to that game when you're they're not there for your main game. The other thing I've done in the Barbarians Lemuria game I'm running is when not all the players could show up, we've done flashbacks and revisited events that happened before all the characters met up. So I've done flashbacks in, like, some of the characters' lives where the other players just played other people, you know, there. And and that's worked out well. Um, So that's kind of another option. But, again, you're doing the world building, so you may not want to do that. So maybe have a backup game. And while it's tempting to do the backup game, you know, similar, I would say it'd be nice for it to be something totally different. So for, like, our Umerica game, the DCC post-apocalyptic game, our backup game is called Cthulhu in the 20s. And so for a fantasy game, maybe my backup game would be, I was about to say Star Frontiers, but maybe Off-Worlders or maybe, you know, maybe one of these, you know, it, it had to be a, a light, quick moving game, but maybe jump to a science fantasy game or a science fiction game, you know, so you have something really different. Or you could do a sporadic like Monster of the Week game, something like that. So anyway, just some ideas. And, and yes, as far as the, increasing the encounters when people linger that you talk about in this beginning of this episode you 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 did catch my meaning you, you just build a dice pool and it just still kicks off on the same number but you roll more dice to try to trigger it take care oh, thanks jason that uh, that was jason from uh the nerds variety rpg cast a perennial call enter <laughs> i always enjoyed your calls and 
enjoy the conversation we have back and forth across the, the two shows. Um, uh, yeah, I think those are all really good suggestions. And you even got my wheels turning a little bit when you mentioned flashbacks. Since we are kind of in a world-building, world-exploration kind of game, we could do some flashbacks to, to other lo- earlier times in the characters' lives. Um, or I could probably cook up a few little side scenarios and let them play people who are otherwise NPCs or, or other other ways to explore corners of the setting that are adjacent to where they're at now, but that they may not get to just so they get a little more sense of the the world around them. I don't know. I'll have to think more on that. But uh, thanks for the call, Jason. Hey, BJ. Uh, just to maybe give insight to your question about what happens when people aren't there. I think I used to call it when there wasn't a quorum, but now I have so many games. I guess I came to the realization I have so many games that I want to play that I've developed backups so that if we have you know, two people show up, we'll do something else. Um, something that happened before, a flashback, uh, a dreamscape, an interlude of some sort, or just play an entirely new game. And there are some game systems that are very conducive um, to a few people play, but even like the older versions of D&D, I mean, you just hire henchmen, right? And you can bolster the force of a couple players. And those other players, well, they just, uh, you know, and the fade in the background, and this works better if your games are episodic and self-contained, like a West Marches-style game, so that the characters go out into the jungle or out into the ruin, and they come back by the end of the session, and then the other characters who don't show up are in town somewhere. It works great in a sci-fi setting, like I would say Star Trek, where the characters just have crew duties and they're not there. And some game systems are more conducive to even, like, two-person play or even solo play, I would say, like in Savage World, it's easy to scale things down. In the Modifia system, the same thing. It's easy to scale things down. And Call of Cthulhu has now come out, the Chaosium for Call of Cthulhu 7th has now come up with like solo play. So I think, you know, I, I, I plan things for the full group. Like I said, I plan things for the full group, but if people stop are not showing up, then you just scale things down so that you get the game in. And if people miss, I know it sucks and they won't be able to relive it or replay it, but, but Hey, that's what happens. And I think someone who helped me, a GM who helped me really see this and not get bent out of shape or take it personal was Kevin Madison from dungeon musings. Cause you know, he's got a lot of players who show interest, but then people drop out. I mean, I guess there's really no commitment and what can you do, right? You can't punish people, for playing, you know, a game about elves and magic missiles, right? So <clears throat> you just keep going. You want to play the game that you want to play. Um, you have backups for if things don't work out the way you want, like if you want to take a break from the main campaign, but then you still play the game. That was Carl Rodriguez from a, a new podcast on Anchor, The Geomologist Presents, although... Uh, Carl's been around the Anchor community for a long time, just calling in with uh, some of the people he plays with, particularly Jason. So uh, it's not surprising that his advice echoes a little bit of what Jason was saying because I think they play together a lot. And I I assume Carl is probably going to forget more about 
games in his lifetime that I'm ever going to know. <laughs> he runs a lot of games, from what I understand, with a lot of different game systems. Um, so thanks, Carl, for the for the input and the, the advice, things to think about. Um, I appreciate it, and uh, thanks for calling. Hey, BJ. Dude, I love the title of the Queen of Lost Souls. That is just, mwah, say, magnifique, super flavorful. And I absolutely hear you on the Raven Queen. She is my favorite of the, uh, you know, the pre-generated D&D gods. I, I love her to pieces. She is the gothiest and the hottest right up my alley. And also, man, your idea uh, of the underworld being stocked to keep humans out from the realm of the dead, that is genius, man. I don't think I've heard that before either uh i love it that is absolute gold man so kudos to you for that that's it peace out and that was joe from the hindsightless podcast <laughs> thanks for the great compliments joe uh I, I really really appreciate that um and yeah uh i was listening you know when i first was listening to your uh your call i think where i got that idea was I was looking at sort of this idea of the mythic underworld that, that has made its rounds, in the, in the, particularly in the OSR, um, about how it has its own rules and its own um, laws of nature that make it fundamentally different. And I always had liked the idea that the Underdark is not just below ground, but that it's actually a transition either to the Shadowfell or the Plane of Shadow or something like that. Um, it's a little extra planner in nature, but, but, but also, and I can't remember for the life of me who made first made this suggestion or, or put about it in, a, in an article or a blog post, but the idea that mega dungeons are alive. And so the, when you come back the way you came and everything is shifted around, there, there's just some metaphysical reason that the dungeon itself has adapted and evolved. Um, maybe just because that's what it do, does, but maybe because of it's a response to, to the presence of the players there. And I thought that was a really cool idea, but but I didn't, I just couldn't buy the idea of wall shifting and, and things like that. Um, so I got to thinking about well, what what if what's responding to the people being there is 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 the monsters themselves, not not the mega dungeon or, or the caverns, but the inhabitants, and they're part of that ecosystem, and they have an instinctive like you're not supposed to be here. Um, uh, it also made me think about ways to mechanically. And I'll have to give this more thought if, for if they ever adventure, adventure deep enough to where they are no longer just underground but are actually in the underworld, which I think is likely to happen at some point as they're dungeon delving in the near future. But also if by, by any chance they ever transition over into the, to, to the other world, you know, the realm of fairy, something that continually signals to the players, you're not supposed to be here and the longer you're here, something something's going to give, you know. Um, because this is not in keeping with the natural order of things. And I hate to add more mechanics uh, to the game, uh, but I think if you just narrate that, uh, you can only say it so many times that your players start ignoring you, particularly once they get up in level and they can handle a lot of challenge. Yeah, what's going to threaten me? Um, but if there's some kind of simple little thing where, where the longer you stay kind of in a domain where you're not supposed to be there, you start to feel the effects and think, like, we better... We better get get what we came for and go home, um, because if we stay here, something either this place is going to absorb us and, and mutate and transform us to the point that we can't go home, 
uh, or it's going to kill us or, or something. Um, I'll have to think more on that, but, 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 you know, kind of sparked a little more of my imagination just in, in your response there. So I appreciate it. Take care. Always enjoy your calls. So this episode may be a little, um, a little more rambling. <laughs> I always ramble, but, um, several things that happened in the last couple of weeks and, you know, sometimes the human mind demands order and explanation. So these could be completely un- unrelated things, but, but they got my mind working in a, in a certain direction. Um, it got me thinking about the kind of settings that we play in different role-playing games, particularly pre-existing settings and, and different types of intellectual property. And so here's kind of, the, let me bear with me as I go through what, what brings this all about. Um, I saw uh, an announcement earlier this week that Marvel will be putting out next year a new role-playing game for Marvel superheroes. And this will be, as far as I could tell, it wasn't by a third-party publisher. This is actually Marvel putting it out there. And it's supposed to come out next year in 2022. And there will be a year of open play tests before the finalized finalized product comes in 2023. So they're going to do a, a play test kind of like... Um, Wizards of the Coast did with 5th edition and, and Pathfinder. I, I think there was a, a limited, even with the first edition of Pathfinder, that, that Paizo did. Um, so, uh, so, so, it got me thinking, you know, Marvel, it's not the first Marvel role-playing game. Um, TSR, way back in the 80s, had, had a Marvel role-playing game with the what's now become known as the Phase Rip system uh, that you can still find a version of. Uh, available online, really popular. A few years ago, um, there was a Marvel role-playing game put out by, I believe, by Margaret Wise's company. You know, Margaret Wise, who's one of the co-creators of Dragonlance, um, who didn't use anything like a D&D system. It, was, it used polyhedron, the same dice as D&D, but it used a dice pool mechanic. And that was a really fun game as well. I played a few sessions of that and really enjoyed it. And I think I have most of the books... Um, on, on my shelf gathering dust. <laughs> but um, this will be the first time with Marvel that the owner of Marvel is publishing the game instead of licensing it out to a third party. And who knows if it's successful, maybe that'll be where it stays. But um, I'm going to be thinking of other, you know, Star Wars. Maybe eventually, because we're talking about companies owned by Disney, if, if they could, you know, Disney or a branch of Disney, you know, does its own successful role-playing game on Marvel, maybe they'll do the same with Star Wars. I don't know. Because we've had various iterations of Star Wars licensed to third parties. There's the, the classic West End Star Wars, the, the 2D6 system. Um, Wizards of the Coast had the Star Wars, and I think they put out two versions of, of Star Wars when they had the intellectual property. Uh, then that the next iteration um, are the Fantasy Flight games. Um which, um, again, I, I've played those. I, I own most of the, that material and enjoyed it. But as my understanding is Fantasy Flight has now lost that, that uh, option. And so the next Star Wars role-playing game will become some, be coming from somewhere else, potentially. Um, and even Warhammer. You know, Games Workshop focuses itself on miniatures and the war game. 
and it, it, it at times licenses out its uh, both both classic fantasy Warhammer and Warhammer 40K. The role-playing games are licensed to different companies, and we get different versions from different publishers, and usually when a new publisher takes on any of these intellectual properties, they don't... Um, they kind of disregard anything that was good or beloved about the previous edition, and they just come up with their own way of doing it. Um, and so I just think that's really interesting. If you're going to play a Forgotten Realms game, unless you just decide to take a, a, a radically different system and, and, and play in the Forgotten Realms setting, um, you're playing Dungeons & Dragons. Now, Dungeons & Dragons is a, is a game system changes over time, but because... Forgotten Realms belongs to the people who own Dungeons and Dragons, Wizards of the Coast, right now. Um, that's their intellectual property, but they—it's—it's it's their setting. The, the game and the setting belong to them, uh, and I guess that's true of any of, uh, um, you know, they took Greyhawk, Dark Sun, Spelljammer, Dragonlance, Mistara, whatever the case may be. Um, so, so you can kind of homebrew your own using a different game system than D and D in those settings. But if you're going to just buy them off the shelf and play them, it's the same person. And this new Marvel game might be the first time a superhero adaptation of either Marvel or DC has been that way. And I, to me, it's a little—I don't know—as a fan of, of these different settings, as, as they have their own fiction, their own lore, their own history. Um. Particularly when you're adapting something like like Marvel, DC, Star Wars, Star Trek, um, Dune, whatever the the, the existing fiction, it, it, it's a role playing game based on the fiction, not a fiction or world created to role play in. If that makes sense, it, it can be kind of weary, make you kind of weary as a fan. I think, oh my god, I just want to play Star Wars and now I got to learn a new system. I want to play. Superheroes. I want. I want to be in the Marvel universe, and now here's a new system. And you can always play the old systems. I'm not denying that. I mean, that's the entire point. Of, I think of the OSR is we don't have to play the newest system if we don't want to. We, we those older game systems are available for us to fall back on if that's what we like or what we feel like doing at a particular point in time. Um, but it is this interesting thing to me. I, I don't know. And again, these are kind of half formed thoughts in my head of. When you look at the stuff surrounding Dungeons and Dragons, it tends to be settings owned by TSR or now Wizards of the Coast, designed for the game. Although you have to put a that, that Forgotten Realms has to have an asterisk. Um, Forgotten Realms is a fantasy world Ed Greenwood made up when he was a kid before D and D even existed. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but Elminster, the character of Elminster, and also Mort, the, uh, the money lender, they pre-exist. Dungeons and Dragons, these were characters he came up with as a kid when he was just making up his own fantasy stories in his head, if I understand it correctly. And then when he discovered D&D, he began to create a home campaign set in the Forgotten Realms. But at this point, they bought all the publishing rights to it, and they, there's been so many authors that have worked on that setting at, at the behest of, of TSR and then later Wizards of the Coast. It's basically a Dungeons and Dragons setting. All the lore and everything conforms to Dungeons and Dragons and seems to be, meant, at this point, made as a way for you to play Dungeons and Dragons, despite the many, I mean, you read any of the novels and you can see that the novels are adapting stories that follow the rules and structures inherent in the Dungeons and Dragons game. Um, 
but it is kind of interesting when you um, are playing in a, in, a, in, a, in a setting or an intellectual property that was something else before it was a role-playing game and how the whoever's publishing or making that role-playing game, if they're wanting to distribute it to the public, not just making it for the home use of they and their friends, they have to get a, a license or, or, or permission to use that IP to, to build a, a, a game around a movie or a comic book series or, or a television show or something like that. Well, that interests me. I mentioned Star Wars, but there's been a lot of discussion in some of the, the other anchor podcasts, particularly at Nerds RPG Variety Cast. Jason has brought up some some several episodes about science fiction and role playing and the difference between science fiction and science fantasy and uh, space you know space opera and um, I think uh, there's a new podcast um, I'll have to look that up Brian's new podcast uh, he he's mentioned that in a, in a recent episode as well uh, just that's kind of the the meme that's going around the uh, the, the the anchor community right now um but that got me thinking of and yet another one of, of our uh anchor podcasters the, the thought eater frother the thought eater podcast who a couple weeks ago decided to step away for a while because he's got uh, other real life issues going on and he just doesn't have the time or, or the focus right now which is understandable um but he had several quite a while back posed Noted that as he, he was looking, I believe, at Roll20 stats of the types of games that are playing, it's fantasy just far exceeds any other kind of um, role-playing. And, and, and he put out the question, where are all the sci-fi role-playing games? We know nerds love sci-fi as much as they love fantasy usually. Where, where and, and there, there are ample games available to play science fiction. Uh, where are they? And, and one of the answers among many that, that, that he and some of the callers came up with was... When you look at fantasy, it's predominated particularly by Dungeons and Dragons and Pathfinder, and it has these settings that are made to be in role-playing games. So there are places left blank on the map. The, the the internal logic and lore of the settings follow the conventions that fit the rules of the game you're playing. Versus science fiction is typically a um, an adaptation of a pre-existing IP, Star Wars, Star Trek, The Expanse, Buck Rogers, Flash Gordon, Dune, whatever, whatever, take your pick. Um, now, Traveler, which is maybe the oldest sci-fi role-playing game, I, I don't know if it, it, it may not, Star Frontiers maybe, or maybe there's another one I'm not thinking of. But Traveler has, I mean, you can homebrew a setting in Traveler, but it has a couple of, of, um, settings that were designed to be played in Traveler, and Traveler has a default um, setting in the Third Imperium, Third Imperium of Man. Um, so you don't have to play in those settings, but it, it has its settings designed for it as a game. Um, but most of the sci-fi games are are adaptations of other IP, and, and even more specifically. Um, they're, they're, it's not the same system. If you're going <laughs> to play a Star Trek role-playing game, it's probably not going to be the same game system that is currently in print for whatever the current Star Wars role-playing game or the current whatever science fiction, science fantasy role-playing game you want to play. Um, so it's kind of it, it just it, it, it's a different animal with sci-fi because you're adapting other people's IP. So I don't know where I'm going with this. This is just 
popped into my mind sometime yesterday and got the wheels turning. So I guess there, that's what I have to say. That's an observation I have about uh, the idiosyncrasies of role playing and where the intellectual the intellectual property regarding the settings. Um, I guess also the thing that happened this week is that Wizards of the Coast announced its next setting book is going to be yet another Magic the Gathering <laughs> adaptation. Um, and no offense, I, I know there are a good number of people who play Magic the Gathering and also enjoy D&D, and they look forward to these settings where they're, they're going to ha- where you can play Dungeons and Dragons in a Magic the Gathering plane of existence. Uh, I, I guess for the for the the old hands like me, we're looking more like if you're going to give us more material, why don't you give us some updates to um, to the to the classics, you know, Dragonlance, Dark Sun, Greyhawk, Spelljammer. That, that's what I think some of the older guys are looking for, um, not more Magic: The Gathering crossovers. But again, that's intellectual property, just like those D and D settings are in Wizards of the Coast IP. All those magic settings are, are Wizards of the Coast IP, which are which are ripe for for usage. Um, yeah, so just another observation. I know I had a, a I think it wasn't on here. I think it was some call-ins to Jason's show about DC and uh, DC movies. We talked a little bit about DC movies versus DC animation um, and, and studio inter. Jason brought up studio interference. I know that's been a I don't know how, how true this is. This may be apocryphal, but you know, Warner Brothers has a, a bad reputation, supposedly, of, of interfering with directors and producers when they go to make a movie, um, and and sometimes insist on plot elements or characters or other things that that may not be the best for the story that they're trying to create on film. Uh, and then maybe some que- question about what maybe some of Zack Snyder stuff might have been better received if it wasn't for studio interference. But I, I know that's Warner. That's been the Warner Brothers' legacy for a long time, and that's why you got two good Superman films, and then a couple of duds, and then Supergirl, which was a dud. Steel was a dud. You got a couple of good Batman movies, and then they just went downhill. Um, and it's taken them a long time, and and, and you know still very divisive as to whether they've actually how often they've actually achieved a good adaptation. Marvel had some crappy movies through the 80s and 90s and then finally got their stuff together and is producing pretty good stuff that people appreciate. I know there are are people who don't like the Marvel movies, but they they seem to be doing a little bit better job. But one of the things I've I've heard, and that's Marvel, even though Disney owns them now, Marvel started its own movie studio to do that with its characters. Um, Warner Brothers, I I can't remember when they acquired DC, but it was, I believe... It was at least by the time Richard Donner's Superman came out. I think a Warner Brothers had owned DC Comics. <clears throat> and so there's really no protection, right? If, if, if a studio executive at Warner Brothers decides it's time to make a Green Lantern movie, they don't have to involve anybody who's ever written Green Lantern. I mean, they do, but they don't have to. But then they can just run roughshod over the people who actually curate and, and take care of those characters in, in, in the comic book division at DC Comics. And, and my understanding is, at least when Stan Lee was still kind of in charge at Marvel, they, they didn't license out their intellectual property for movies and TV. If you wanted to do a movie or TV show about Spider-Man or the Hulk or Captain America, you had to come and pitch it to Stan. And if he thought the idea wasn't consistent with the character or, or good for, for Marvel's, you know, what they were trying to do, he, he, he would just reject it. Now, again, I don't know if that's true. That's just, you know, years of 
things you read about in letters pages and talking to other comic book fans and all. This was before the internet. No way to verify it because, as we all know, everything on the internet is absolutely true and verifiable. There's there's no misinformation there at all. <laughs> anyway, I'm rambling again. Uh, but it's just an interesting thing about how the how the the things we love is is, is science fiction, fantasy, superhero fans. The way those intellectual properties get controlled, not controlled, licensed, not licensed, and where they wind up in different forms of media and adaptations. Um, so, you know, I'm a sucker. I'm sure I'm going to buy that new Marvel role-playing game and, and try to play it and give feedback and, and consume the final product. And even if I don't like it, I'll just complain about it. Um, <laughs> again, the theme of, of intellectual property, but it's kind of a rambling rant there on my part. Anyway, uh, this is one in particular where I would really like to hear other people's thoughts on this. So please, um, through the Anchor app, through the Anchor website, give me give me your feedback, your thoughts on on this particular um, line of thinking. Um, in particular, I'd like to hear some hear some of you guys you've never called in before. So uh, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. And as so often happens, I, I lost my own point. Uh, in my rambling, uh, when, uh, that, that topic came up with, with, uh, on the thought eater podcast about, um, perhaps the idea that people avoid the, the idea was people avoid science fiction because they're messing around with an existing and well-known IP where you're likely to have fans who are going to say, well, that's not how photon torpedoes work on the enterprise or no, 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 the Sith do this. And, and, it, and it kind of, narrows the GM's ability to make this world their own when it's something like Star Wars or Star Trek um, or, or an exi- another existing IP. Even It can be even probably intimidating to, to run a game in Marvel or DC because you're, who knows, if, if you're not the biggest fanboy at the table, you, you know how nerds get with their, with their continuity <laughs> on the, uh, the settings and the, the IPs that they enjoy. So... Um, in addition to normal rules lawyering, now you've got a you know a Marvel historian or a Star Wars historian um, who asks questions you may not have the answer to and you don't want to think about because um, you hadn't really planned for it to be part of your game. Uh, versus when you you kind of stick, particularly your homebrewed fantasy, you can do that. Um, but I know I've even in the past kind of been intimidated to run. What a long time ago, I used to be kind of intimidated to run anything in the Forgotten Realms other than a published module that I knew kind of fit the general continuity because I was afraid of, I don't know why this doesn't make any sense. I'm not afraid of it anymore of running afoul of what the real history established and existing history of the forgotten realms, which is silly because they tell you the first page of any forgotten realms book, take this and make it your own. Um, so I've kind of gotten over that as, as I've gotten older, but I know used to be, if I was going to make up a, an entire adventure, I, I kind of wanted to do it in a homebrew setting and I'm back to doing a homebrew setting. I've, I've done, done that two or three times for campaigns. Um, but I'm, I'm less worried about running in, in someone else's IP now. Um, other than, you know, I, Star Wars. Star Wars is so sacred to, to the nerds of, 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 of my generation. <laughs> Nobody wants to screw, be the guy that screwed up Star Wars, do they? Anyway, um, I, I just wanted to clarify there that the, the, the point of... of I was making was about uh, perhaps science fiction can be a little more intimidating because you're mucking around with IP intellectual property and settings that have established canon and history and, and very passionate fans 
versus in fantasy you have a little more room to kind of make things up and, and, and fill in. You know, here's an, here's an undiscovered continent or, or, or a blank space on the map where we can just kind of make up what's going on here and have a lot more flexibility. Anyway, again, be, be really interested in hearing other people's thoughts on this. And that's it for this episode of The Arcane Alienist. I want to thank Dave Bone for the cover art that I use for the episodes. Check out ironseer.com. And the music is Come and Get It by Scott Holmes Music. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, give me a call sometime through the Anchor app or at the Anchor website. And I'll be back in the future with another episode.